We've just participated in something that is comfortably old. It's refreshingly ancient. As I suggested, as, as I suggested or mentioned before, this was this this table, the Lord's table, has its roots in Passover. Long ago, Passover was first celebrated that day or the night before the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, as one of the young girls reminded us when he parted the waters of the Red Sea and brought them through death into new life. Passover was celebrated for the second time at the at the in the presence of God himself at Mount Sinai, there before the mountain. And as far as we know, the, only the third time that Passover was celebrated was in the book, in the story that is before us this morning. Forty years later, almost 40 years after Sinai, when now they cross over Jordan, they enter this land now for the third time with Joshua on those plains of Jericho, standing before this, this impressive and impenetrable fortress city. They pause and remember what it is that God has done for them. It's something old. It's something agent. But I, I, get, away from, I get ahead of my story a little bit. The book of Joshua is a book about action. It's a book about conquest. It's a book of decisive victory. This is a book that calls God's people to continue to live in the victory that God has given. Joshua is not merely for us to know what happened along the way. Joshua was written after all of those things happened, obviously, so that the, the people coming along next the people who come along after would remember, and they also are invited in. They are challenged. They are urged to live in God's victory. I call it a decisive victory because this is a, a absolute certain. This is a complete victory, a life-changing, take-no-prisoners decisive victory. More important than that, I, I call it God's decisive victory because it's a victory you have to decide to join into. You choose to take part in this victory. Before 30 minutes go by, you and I are going to be confronted by this book. We are going to be confronted by Joshua, called to decide to choose this day who you will serve. You and I are called to decide day by day, choice by choice, option by option. Will I have it my way? Will you have it your way? Or will we have it God's way? Choice by choice, day by day, decision by decision, we choose to live in God's decisive victory. You know, the, the memory of it still troubles me. The day that a man came to talk with me, a long time ago now, but it still bothers me. He was convinced that there was a victorious Christian life, but he had also determined that it must be that God did not intend for him to have that victory. He had tried. He had fallen. He had tried. He had fallen. And he was convinced by this point that though there, must, there was victory there and he thought he could see it in others, that that victory was out of his reach. Perhaps you share 
something of that man's experience. Certainly all of us have had those times when we have tried and failed. All of us can easily remember. We would, we would like a life that, that was filled more with hope and less with regret. And yet I hope there's something about that man's story that is also your story. I hope there's something in his experience that is in your experience, and that is that hungering that God has given us a victory, and I want to live in it. In fact, I want to live more in it. That is what is set before us in the book of Joshua, that God has given us victory. God has given us a victory that we can enter into, but we must choose to live in God's victory. The book of Joshua begins in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. You're probably not surprised at that. The, verse of jo- the book of Joshua begins in chapter 1. Let me read those first five verses because it's, in, it's important as we consider the first stage of if this is a victory for us, but it's, it's not our victory. We choose to live in God's victory. What do the verses say? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aide or assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea, the Mediterranean on the west. No one will will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's an interesting way to begin. Moses is dead, so now let's get going. Actually, there's an important aspect there. It's more important simply than telling Joshua and telling Israel, Moses has died and now there's a new sheriff in town. No, it's bigger than that. You see, Moses, the lawgiver, actually could not lead the people into this victory. This was for Joshua to do. And it's interesting if you note that in the New Testament, the name Jesus is the New Testament version, the Greek version, of the name Joshua in the Old Testament. Hebrew people refer to our Jesus as Yeshua, Joshua. And so, so Joshua in the Old is telling us already something about Jesus who is coming. Moses, the lawgiver, couldn't lead them into this victory. Joshua would be the captain of their salvation. Joshua would be the one who would lead them into new life. John, in his gospel, starting out, puts it this way. He says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, I tell you that starting out because I'm telling you this book calls us to choose. And yet, so easily, when we think about the choices that I make, the decisions that I make, easily we we turn ourselves back into, I am going to please God. I am going to make God happy with me by the things that I do and the things that I don't do. We easily swerve right back into law again. I'm not calling you to live in your victory. This book does not challenge us to live in our list. This book calls us, it invites us, it urges us to live in God's victory, the victory that he has given us in Christ, the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, 
the one who is the author who, who goes before and the one who is the finisher, the one who brings us along. And yet we will choose. We will choose to follow them. The most important, perhaps, key to living in God's victory. We see it in, in Moses to Joshua. We see it in the very next thing that they do. The most important key, perhaps, is to know who you are, to know your identity in Christ. What we see Israel do right away is they remind themselves of who they are. Even in stepping across the Jordan, right? They're reminded. Those waters part and they go across on dry ground just like the Red Sea. In fact, that's pointed out just in case anybody would miss it at the end of chapter 4, verse 23. If the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just as he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us all until we had crossed over. Even the, even the young ones saw it. We even get the stories confused. We've, we've got Moses sometimes at the Jordan and Joshua at the Red Sea. We, they're so much alike. It's almost like those wilderness years didn't even happen. What God had done is still true. Who God was then is still true. They are remembering God's promise. Perhaps it's been a long time since you were born again, since you came to faith in Christ, since you were baptized in the name of Christ into his death and his resurrection. Perhaps that's a long, long time ago. But what was true then is true now. The same God that raised Christ from the dead is the same, same God who gives life to our mortal bodies. Israel's reminded of that, even as they start in. The God who redeemed us out of Israel is the God who gives us new life. And so they step into that new life another way. They step into that new life by celebrating Passover again, even as we did the Lord's table this morning. But they separate, they step into that new life. There they are across the Jordan. And what are they going to do now? Here's Jericho before them, this fortress city. They cannot, they cannot enter into any of the rest of their, their promise. They will not receive any of this land unless they first get through Jericho. How are they going to do that? It's this fortress city with a double wall, and there's an embankment up even before the first wall. You can't even climb up to the first wall to get over it to try to go after the second wall. How are they going to get into this city? How are they going to get past this city? Well, the first thing to do then, after they've crossed the Jordan, is, well... The kings of the, of the area, they see what God does. This is the same God that took them out of Egypt. The same God now has brought them across Jordan, and their hearts melt within them. But I think maybe the, the hearts of the men of Israel melted a little bit because there they are on the Jericho side of Jordan, and it's time for circumcision. Really? What's that all about? Why that? Why now? Why circumcise the, again? This is, now it's catch-up time. The whole time they've been wandering in the wilderness, that generation that did not believe, because they did not believe, they did not circumcise their sons as they were born. So now they're about to enter into their inheritance. They're going to step into God's promise, but they have not been living out God's promise along the way. You see, circumcision is not just a weird thing Jewish people do. Circumcision was the mark of God's promise to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. That's why they're stepping into this land now. That was God's promise to Abraham long before the law even came along. And the mark of that covenant, the mark that Abraham and his descendants belonged to God, 
with circumcision. So they say, if we're going to enter into this land, if we're going to enter into God's promise, it's going to be based on God's covenant to us, not on our ability. So there's, circum- there's this elective... Now, if you're thinking about this, I'm thinking, why would they do this elective surgery that for a few days is going to basically disable all of the men of fighting age of Israel? Why didn't they do that on the other side of Jordan? No. There they had the Jordan to be their protection, their shield between them and Jericho. No, they don't need Jordan for that. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Of whom will I be afraid? And so there they are. When it doesn't make sense, you know, that, this is an act of faith by Israel. They are in faith going to trust God. This is his promise. This is what he said. This is what we're going to do. They step in by faith into God's covenant. Sometimes faith seems foolish, doesn't it? Sometimes the things you do because this is what God has said don't seem to make sense. And yet we're pressed into sometimes the foolishness of faith because we want to please, first of all, the God who made us, the God who saved us. The remembering through the Jordan, through circumcision, through, through celebrating Passover, they're remembering who they are. They're remembering their identity. It's because of who we are, who God has called us to be, that's why we can enter into this victory. Well, how does that relate to us? Well, out of Passover, we have this table. We continue to remember what it is that God has done for us in his son. What about the circumcision thing? Now, you men will be glad to hear that I'm not going to be calling you forward to continue that right this morning. Relax. But what I am going to suggest is in the same way that circumcision marked out that covenant with Abraham, our Lord did give us something else. He gave the church two ordinances. He gave us the Lord's table, answers to, ba- to, to Passover. And he gave us circumcision, that, or rather, in the place of circumcision, he gave us baptism, not as an equivalent, but baptism for the believer is the mark of our new covenant. It's the declaration of our participation in his new covenant in Christ. So then, those who believe in Christ, Jesus said, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all things as I've commanded you. We, we, we often want to think about, about obedience in the Lord and following the Lord. But, you know, a journey of a thousand miles, it said, begins with one step. And if that journey is to follow Christ, the first step of that journey is going to be a step into water. That's not the water of Jordan. That would be faith in Christ for new life. But declaring that new life, declaring that I belong to him, is lived out, acted out, portrayed to the world for almost 2,000 years as baptism. I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but John Stott, now he's Anglican, and so they, they uh, actually take this whole from circumcision to baptism very literally that they baptize children before they believe. We understand that the New Testament has baptism for those who have believed in Christ. Believe and be baptized. But John Stott does make an interesting point. That for those of you that would say, well, I'm a believer, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, I just haven't been baptized. For those of you unbaptized 
Christians, John Stott would say, well, I'm sorry, but the New Testament simply has no place for you. Now, by that, I don't mean to say that if you're not baptized, you are not saved. Not at all. But what I would say is, why not? Why not join in that declaration of faith where you take your stand as Israel did before Jericho you take your stand that I believe in Christ that his death is my death and so then his new life this life of victory shall be my life you know what you do in baptism you proclaim the boss you proclaim the gospel this is the way that God has declared the gospel to the church for 2,000 years when you Go down in those waters and back up in baptism. Not only did you do declare to yourself Christ's death and resurrection, but you remind all of the rest of the church. You become a preacher of the gospel to his church in a way that the church has preached it for the last 2,000 years. That's exciting to me. That's exciting to me. This first step of obedience because all of the Christian life is will I trust the Lord? Will I step into that by the, what Paul calls the obedience of faith? And the first one is a difficult one. And yet it's an easy one. It's one that saints before you for all of this time have done. And when you join into this, you are joining into something refreshingly ancient. You are joining into something that is far bigger than yourselves, far bigger than us, far bigger than Baptist churches. This is what Christ's church does. And we're part of that. He has made us part of that. So they, they, they remind themselves of who they are. You remind yourself. The first step in, in, in victory in Christ is reminding yourself of your identity in Christ. Know who you are. Know whose you are. That sets some things in the right direction. And so then, they, they continue in the book of Joshua. They step toward Jericho. Living in God's decisive victory comes from deciding to do what God says. They have lived out what God has said so far. They have trusted him to enter where he has called them to enter. And now they face Jericho. What are they going to do? What's the strategy? They're going to march around the city. They're going to do that one time each day, day one, day two, day three, out, make a lap, come home, nothing happens. Well, that was encouraging. Day two, out, make a lap, come home, nothing happens. And day three and day four. You know, I think the VeggieTales version has it right on this one. I think somewhere in there, about day two, day three, day four, somewhere in there, there were rotten vegetables and there were jeers and catcalls from the walls. And perhaps those who were making the circuit, who were making the loop around Jericho one more time, one more day, were thinking, is this really doing anything? What does this have to do with anything? Sometimes we, have, we, we don't have any idea what it is or why it is that God has called us to this. Why it is that God has said to do that, and yet the obedience of faith is not the obedience of understanding. The obedience of faith says, I will follow him when I don't understand. It says, I will do what I don't quite get because he has said to. That's not the obedience of I understand. In fact, the Bible tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct 
your path. So they step into the obedience of faith. Seventh day, seven times around, a great shout, and all the wall comes down. All the wall, except for one part. All the wall, except for one part where Rahab's house was. Rahab is not to be missed in the story, because even at this point in the conquest, even in the signature victory in this new land, where God takes everything and God destroys everything still, There's a person, an unlikely person. And she extends that mercy of God out by telling her family, and they come in and they shelter as well, and they call out for salvation to the God of Israel. And that part of the wall there at her house on the wall does not fall. Imagine all the walls are crumbling. As much of the miracle of the walls crumbling down, as much of that miracle is that one section stays up right where Rahab lives. We see God's mercy there. You read through the conquest and you think God is a God of judgment. God is a God of rage. God is a God of anger. God is a God of mercy. In the very minute of judgment, God is ready to spare. God is ready, waiting to be merciful. Do you see that? Because that's not just true of Rahab. That's true of us. In the midst of wanting to live in God's victory, I will fail, and yet there is mercy. It tells us something about who we are as a people. Israel receives Rahab. They make a place for her. They make room for her. We are a people who have been saved by God's mercy. We must be a people who extend God's mercy to others. Those who have been saved by mercy must be merciful. We need to find how do we reach out, how do we extend God's mercy to the people around us. That's what Israel does with Rahab. That's a contrast, an interesting contrast, because if we are going to live in God's victory, then we're going to do what God says. They do what God says. They go around, they go around, they go around. They're doing what God says, obedience in Christ. But obedience in Christ includes both what we do and what we don't do. You can turn that around and you can say, say disobedience or sin. Turning away from victory can occur both in the things we do and in the things that we don't do. The, the old liturgy says, I have sinned against you, God, in what I have done and in what I have left undone. We see both of those in Israel here around Jericho, Jericho and Ai. So we saw their obedience going around the walls, and we see God grant victory. And then not far, but God said, everything in the city is mine. Nothing in the city is for you to be taken away as, as, a, as a prize, as a reward, as, as part of your inheritance. This, this first city is the first fruits of the land. Just like I gave you victory here, I will give you victory over all of them. But the first one belongs to God. Everything in it, the grain, the supplies, the silver, the gold, everything in it belongs to God. But there was a man named Achan. Well, we'll read about it in chapter 7. Turn over now to chapter 7 in verse 1. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Faith or unfaith is a matter of obedience or disobedience. Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, a real person with real family, other people who were going to be affected, took some of them. 
So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. See what Achan did is he saw in the midst of, of, the, of the troops rushing in to take the city, he sees, oh, there's a nice-looking suit of clothes hanging in the, in the window of the men's store there as they're going by the mall. And, and he sees some, some silver coins laying about, and, well, that's spending money. He, he picks up some of that, and he sees this big chunk of gold. Well, a chunk of gold is not something you use at the market, but that's a future investment. That's riches and wealth laid aside for the future. Nice stuff in life. A little spending money. Investing for the future. Those are the same things that can be the ruin of any of us. Those are the attractions that lead us astray. Now, think about it for a minute. This was the first fruits. Every city was theirs. God was going to give them vineyards they did not plant, houses they did not build. He was going to give each family an inheritance that they would pass on to their children, their children's children, their children's children's children, all of those children. It was going to be an enduring inheritance. And Achan instead sees a nice suit of clothes, some spending money, some coins, as he used to say in Swaziland, some few coins and a chunk of gold, something for the future, but not nearly as big as an inheritance that would go from generation to generation from generation that he trades off for Esau's bowl of porridge. He gives it away for something that's in front of them. But it doesn't, see this, what, what Achan does doesn't just affect himself. Often we think, well, it's up to me. I'm taking my own chances here. It's going to affect me. No, the thing that Achan does affects all of Israel. They rush off. To, hey, God gave us this victory. Off to the next one. That city, that looks pretty easy. Let's not send everybody. You know, let's give the guys a rest. Let's just send 3,000. One division, they'll be able to take that next city. It's a little one. How'd that work for them? They got creamed. They got creamed. They run hell, mail, hell, hell, whatever it is. I forget that expression. But they run back down the hill as fast as they can. 36 of them don't make it. Not all that went up the hill come back down the hill. It's a horrendous defeat, especially when God is on your side. And so then they go to prayer and they say, God, where have you been? And God says, what do you mean? Where have you been? I didn't hear you asking me about your plans. I would have told you that I'm not with you. There's a problem with Achan in Israel. And it didn't affect him only, it affected everybody. It, it, it affected his family. We don't know to the extent that your family was involved in his deception. We don't know that. All we're told is his sin affected his family as well, his household as well, and they all perish as a result of it. It can't be hidden. It will find you out. But chances are the choices that you make are affecting people around you. The sins of parents affect their children. The sins of children affect their parents. The sins of, of, of a brother affects his family. The sins of a sister affects her family. Your sins affect the rest of the family. We affect one another. We impact one another for good or for evil. None of us are an island. None of us live merely to ourselves. We are far more interrelated than we realize. And the choices that we make impact on others. That's one thing we learned from Achan. We also see in the story that pattern of not only what he did, but also what Israel did not do. They make that same mistake of going their own way. They make the same mistake again when they, when they, when they meet up 
with some guys from a city called Gibeon. Now, Gibeon had seen the victories that God had given them already, both at Jericho and then later at Ai. And so then, the, these guys at Gibeon, they're pretty clever, and they say, well, we've got to dress up like we're not from around here. We've got to put some old clothes on and some worn-out sandals. You know, the straps are kind of flopping free from, you know, your old flip-flops, so the straps come loose and stuff. And they've got their old sandals on, and they've got moldy bread in the sacks. They don't have any fresh food left. And they are just looking like they are worn out. They have been on the road for weeks. Really, they just come from down the street there. They were the people in the land that the Israelites were not supposed to be making any agreements with. But they were scared. And so they dress up, they got a, they've got a good costume, they've got a good story, and Joshua and the other leaders, they interview them, they interrogate them, they don't catch them in any obvious, obvious lies, and so they say, well, I guess, you know, what they're presenting, I guess that's so, we can go ahead and make a, a, a peace treaty with them, and they do. And now Gibeon's pretty much off limits. They will not take that city, they will not have that victory. In fact, they're going to, because of this peace treaty, they're going to end up in God's will defending Gibeon from others because Gibeon had made a treaty with them. But once again, they do all of this. They make a good choice, and the one thing they don't do is ask God. They investigate the story, they question the men, but they never ask God for a reference. There's the mistake. Imagine you're taking a a trip. It's February in Portland or Vancouver, and you're ready to head south. You're going to San Diego to get some sun. So you bought your ticket three weeks ago. You just got carry-on. So you've got the flight time. You've got the gate. You printed out your, your boarding pass. You're ready to go. You don't even look at it once the day before you print it out. You're ready to go. You've been to the airport before. You know where things are at. And so you, 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 you get your bag with you. You're looking forward to sunshine, and you come through the terminal you didn't even bother to check the monitors. You didn't have to go through check-in at the front counter because you already had your boarding pass. Not really paying attention. You know how this is done. As you approach your gate, what was supposed to be your gate, you see that they seem to be in a final boarding call. There's nobody around. Last few people are going down the jetway, and, and they're making a final boarding announcement. And so you rush up there, and you, you pull a crumpled boarding pass out of your pocket, and you give it to the attendant. And they don't really t look close enough at it either because they're apparently looking for one more passenger. You're apparently it. So you've made it onto the airplane. Whew. You got your carry-ons tucked away, and as you're, as you're settling down into your seat, it seems like somewhere on the loudspeaker you heard, Welcome to Alaska Airlines, Flight 47 to Kodiak, Alaska. If you had stopped to ask, if you had stopped to listen, you would have noted that your flight had a time change. It left a little bit earlier. It was already boarded three gates down. And now it has already pushed back. In fact, you don't know it, but it's rolling by out the window to your right. Let me say this plainly. The times when I struggle the worst with temptations and with a lack of victory in my own life are the times when I am not looking for God's voice in his word and in prayer. 
when I neglect those things and not necessarily evilly intending to do so, but when I let those things slide, when I let those things go, when I don't take time to hear from God from His Word, when I don't take time to speak and listen and give time for the Spirit to speak to my spirit in prayer, those are the times when I am having the most trouble out of God's victory. We think we know what to do. We think we can autopilot through life. And yet we will autopilot to something far less. I'm, I'm, I'm amused when people come to me and say, is it okay if a Christian does... And fill in the blank. I find that amusing because why are you aiming at okay? You know, if we were aiming at, is it okay if we're, we've got the thing upside down? We shouldn't be aiming at okay. We should be saying, what does God most desire? I want to aim at that. If I want to live in God's victory, I need to do what God says. God's victory comes from identification with Christ, knowing who I am in Christ. God's victory comes from doing what God says. It comes in obedience to Christ. In fact, my identity in Christ, who I am, is lived out in my obedience to Christ, what I do. Did you catch that earlier? I actually said that. I said, if we are a people who are saved by God's mercy, then we must be merciful. others. That's living out who I am. That's obedience to my identity. So then, we need to know who we are, identity in Christ. We need to know what God would have us to do, obedience to Christ. And finally, the third third thing that that this would tell us, if we are going to choose to live in God's victory, it's going to be in dependence on Christ. It's not going to be on the basis of my own resources. It's going to be on depending upon God. We need to choose, but we often don't choose well. If I want to step into that victory, if I want to receive my inheritance, it's going to be in dependence on Christ and not of myself. Now let's turn to that challenge to choose. That challenge to choose, it's in the last book. You know, the middle of, of the, from about the middle of the book on, 13 to 22, it's a rush of chapters that all summarize the inheritance, the inheritance of each and every tribe. These guys get this, and these people get that, and these ones over here, and this family gets this. Why, why, 10 chapters of that? Because God's inheritance is for each of us. God's inheritance is for everybody. God's inheritance is not just generally for some peoples. It's for you. His victory is for you and I. How we will live into that victory, this is Joshua's final challenge. Verse 14 of chapter 24, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers. Worship beyond the river and in Egypt. Back in the wilderness, back in Egypt, throw that away. That's yesterday. That's old life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are made new. Throw them away. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, let's call it what it is. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Maybe the gods of your forefathers beyond the river. Maybe the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But as for me and my household, 
we will serve the Lord. Can I say it again? Can I speak especially to the men? Our choice affects others. Your choice, how you will live, who you will walk with, how you will decide to live in God's decisive victory is not merely about you. You set a pattern for the people around you. You will have influence on those who walk near you. And it will be an influence that will be a help to them or a hindrance to them. The Israelites enthusiastically respond, we will serve the Lord. Absolutely. God has saved us. We will live for him. But Joshua dampens their enthusiasm. Look at verse 19 and 20. It's shocking, really. What a dismal way to end this book. Joshua says to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. You say, wow, that's encouraging. That's optimistic. That's hopeful. No, it's not. You see, here's where old Joshua falls short. And this is where new Joshua fills in. Remember I told you that Jesus is Joshua? That the, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ? That Moses could only give law, and the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A better thing the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. New Joshua, our Jesus, is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who has gone before, as Joshua has gone before this generation, but our Joshua is also the finisher of our faith. He is the one who grabs and brings us along with him. Our victory is in Christ. Our victory will be in dependence upon him. Paul put it this way. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency, our strength, our ability is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers or servants of a new covenant. God has equipped us. God has enabled us in Christ to be followers of him. Not of the letter, the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter of the law kills, but the Holy Spirit gives life. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. So we then, by the Spirit and the power and forgiveness of Christ's grace, let us live out then God's truth. Now before we pray... I want to suggest you check your pockets. You say, why? Well, we're going to receive the offering in just a moment here. No, no, actually, I want you to check your pockets. I wonder if there's an old scratch-it ticket there. A while ago, there was actually the winner, the holder of a 21 million Oregon, Oregon lottery ticket was missing. I don't know if they ever found them. It seems like it would have been in the news that they had. But right now, they're looking for four pages of lottery winners. Four pages of scratch it tickets. Have you got one, Daryl? There are three out there that are worth $250,000 as yet unclaimed. There are four out there that are worth $100,000 yet unclaimed. They might be in somebody's pocket. They might go through the wash already. The, the sad part of it is there are riches that belong to somebody that will go unclaimed. We have the very promise of God to live in his decisive victory. God has called us today to choose 
Will I enter in? Don't take that choice out of here today. There is something that God has said, this is your next step. This is your next step in following him. There's a choice that's set before you. And Joshua echoes in your ears. This day, today, choice by choice, decision by decision, who will you choose? Don't take that opportunity. Don't take the provoking of God's grace and tuck it away in your book. Close it up. Imagine you had a lottery ticket. You took the lottery ticket. You don't even know why you bought one. You tucked it away in your book. You used it for a bookmark. You read the book. A few weeks later, never even checking, you, you took that book with a whole box of others and you took it off to the Salvation Army. Somebody else bought your book. They found the ticket. They went, they said, I wonder, and they went online and checked. Did you write your name in your book? Would she call you and share the winnings with you? It doesn't matter because it's been 14 months. The ticket expires after 12. That's what I wanted to say when I said, don't take this promise. Tuck it away in a book. Take it home with you and ignore it through the week. Choose you this day whom you will serve. God has put something on your heart. I know that. I don't know what it is. For some of you, I have an idea. Hmm. Don't keep going as if it didn't matter. Because it deeply matters. It makes a difference much farther than you and I could know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us as people of the risen King. You have called us to come and follow you, to step into your grace, to live out new life, to live in a certain victory. Oh God, would you help us to do that? Lord, there's choices that have been set before us even today. There are choices that we have been reminded of. Lord, there are choices that we regret, and for these we right now claim your forgiveness in Christ. We thank you for it. We humbly receive it. And Father, we pray for courage to be strong and courageous as you called Joshua. Father, we ask you for that, that we might step into and live in your victory. We pray it in Jesus' name.